flashbacks to some of those hymns of kind of the first time I started coming to church and some of the ladies with their hats on um, singing. This is really cool, kind of a, a special little moment. Um, it was uh, uh, elder, elderly lady um, who's one of the first people to kind of talk to me um, when I first started going to church and how inviting she was. I didn't know this lady. I didn't know what she was doing, <laughs> but she was cool with me. Uh, but we sang one of those hymns a lot, and she would talk to me about it. Um, amen. Well, it's been an exciting morning already. Um, I, as I promised, I'm going to wear this shirt every Sunday until we launch September 10th with the youth ministry. Uh-oh. We had a situation. <laughs> Do you mind closing those doors? <laughs> so, two capable adults by the doors. Amen. Amen. Um, and... Uh, Oh, uh, I was just going to do just a quick little spot. Um, the, the, we, we have an opportunity, really cool a moment to be able to, to um, utilize some of the rest of that room in the youth room. And so we get a chance to do some little renovations, add some paint, and do some cool things um, in there. Uh, you can peek in and see some of the progress as it is now um, in the midst of that. Um, but uh, it's a, one of just the stage of life as the, the toddlers are um, in a different stage of life. We can do that. Um, just wanted to mention, too, our youth ministry will be relaunching. Um, starting Sunday nights, um, six to eight, uh, six to eight o'clock, and it'll be every Sunday. Um, if you don't, ha- if, if this is all brand new to you, that means you haven't been checking your email and or checking on the the meeting that we had or the video thing that we had. There's like three different ways that you could have heard that before, but all the details are in that. Actually, the video is probably the easiest thing to check out, um, but you'll get a chance to see what we're doing with our um, youth ministry going into the 23-24 um, season, and some more details will be coming out as well. Uh, cool. And then you're going to hear about it every Sunday. And if I forget, call me out. I'm going to actually, the first kid that comes up to me and says, you forgot to wear your shirt and you're supposed to be in youth ministry, I will buy you, I don't know, Chick-fil-A. Is that cool? Pizza? I don't know. Whatever, whatever, within reason, whatever place you want to eat. All right. We're not going to roost, Chris, but um, cool. Well, so um, I I have options up here and um, I'm going to explain these here in just a second. But if you've been tracking and or reading in the book of Ephesians um, and sticking with us through the series, then you know uh, what we're about to get into. Um, Today, we're going to cover the very non-controversial, very easy topic of household codes dealing with husbands, wives, fathers, children, masters, and slaves. No big deal. Everyone good? Just read it. and It's easy to figure out. Um, I'm sure you have no baggage walking into this um, conversation today and that it's going to be a simple one to teach. But since I know that's not true, um, today's going to take a little bit more of your span, uh, attention span, and so we've made some room for that with today's um, programming. Um, but what I wanted to do is, a- as we deal with this topic that is highly debated, um, it can't be done without acknowledging that each and every one of us has a history that we bring into this place with the verses that we're about to read in particular. Um, and so let me give a couple of notes. One is that I'm going to assume that many of you have had some interaction with these verses. If not, read through them real quick you'll quickly have some history with these verses, all right? Some of the baggage, uh, some of it could come with baggage and some of it could actually come with pain attached to it. And so I wanna say that I realize we're wading through these waters right up front and we're not at a neutral level. There's something you're bringing into this. Um, and so I've tried to point out along the way when we come across different doctrinal opinions that there are a variety of perspectives, readings, translations, and applications. So I want to give you a quick spoiler alert where we stand, and then I'm going to go back and give some uh, context to all of that. Um, common Ground Northeast is decidedly, as are all of the Common Ground family of churches, an egalitarian church, all right? Um, 
and we have been since around 2017. I'm not sure when that was officially made, but the conversation was happening years before that was um, made official. But since around 2017, we have been an egalitarian church. Um, and what does that mean for you here, especially maybe if you aren't egalitarian in your orientation? Well, one thing is I want you to know that you can disagree and be a part of our church. We have plenty of people who disagree with a lot of things at our church and still come, and you're welcome to be here inside of this. But know that as a church, we are gonna teach and structurally arrange our church with an egalitarian ethic in mind. We believe that there should be, not can be, should be women pastors. And when we find inconsistencies in that belief, we wanna fix that and try to make our church um, come into alignment with that idea. In fact, we ordained Pastor Jody in June of 2019, partly because, um, yeah, all right, we'll get some, some of it. Partly because we realize if, if pastoring is a gift and we see her shepherding, not just kids, but kids' parents and people at large, how many of you have had to stop and be like, Jody, I need something from you on a Sunday morning? I'm, I'm willing to bet many, many, many of you. She's shepherding our church, so why didn't we have that in there? So we put that in place. Pastor Jody is now Pastor Jody, and when the Gideons come around and refuse to say that, I just refuse to talk to them. <laughs> Pastor Sam, Pastor Eric, and... Pastor, oh yeah, we, I think we talked to Jody. Uh, sorry, who? Pastor Jody? You talked to Pastor Jody? Yeah, I guess that's who. Yeah, say, say her title, all right? Um, and so we have that mini battle on a fairly regular occasion, not internal, but externally. We believe that there should be women elders. We see evidence in the scripture that every one of the five-fold ministry described in Ephesians, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teachers, are represented and held by faithful women at some point in the scripture, all right? Um, I can give you footnotes on that at some point. In fact, I'm going to have a, um, a resource list for you at the end of this because I can only cover bits and pieces, and I'm going to tell you to do um, some work on your own. Now, I've taught on women in leadership at our church about three years ago. We've tried to make sure that women are represented on stage and at the highest levels of any decision-making authority inside of our church. Moving towards a new but related topic is what we're talking about today. The household codes found in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 2 and 3 covering the household order. Um, we're going to put a special emphasis on the, um, on, the, on the equity between husbands and wives dynamic, but I'm going to touch on the other ones. I think we'll have a chance to cover some of the other um, aspects of that, um, but they're, they're connected, so it's going to um, pour over. Now, I've never taught on this subject in particular, which is part of the reason I wanted to, to go through Ephesians. I wanted the scripture to allow us to have this, the conversation, and so here we are finally today. Um, now, there's no way for me to give you any idea of where we're at with this without giving you a little bit of my story, and I'm hoping that maybe some of you can relate to that, but almost all of my influences on this topic were shaped by theologians who ascribe to a doctrine called complementarianism. The definition, by, and, and I'm going to try and give this, um, I want to I give the definition that a complementarian would give you um, in, in the midst of that so as not to try to misportray that. Um, but that males and females are equal in dignity and representation of the Imago Dei, but have separate roles in the church and household to accomplish God's mission. All right? Every single church I have ever been in, every single church I have ever worked for, uh, uh, ascribe to this. I have taught this as biblically true in the past. I have, um, our, our family household has, a, has, has tried to arrange our marriage and family household to agree with this for many years, although um, to my wife's credit, she could kind of see problems and, and inconsistencies and she would point those things out and I'll give you a few of those here in a little bit. I've had some experiences, ultimately, that prompted me to wonder if this was actually like 
Is it, is it actually biblical? And so I started to reevaluate, come back to the scriptures, read a little bit more broadly than what was presented to me so that I could understand if the doctrine that was handed to me was actually scripturally biblical. Okay, one of those experiences is this. A man walked into my office where I was a pastor to adults. He was asking for marriage counseling and um, he and his wife had separated and as we started having this conversation, he admitted to, you know, I've got some imperfections, I've got some things that I need to work on. Um, he displayed a li- like a willingness to change some of those things as we had our conversation. But as we continued to meet and I prodded a little bit more and got more details, it just became clear to me that um, what he really wanted was for me to assist him in bringing his wife into alignment with him. He, um, and using the words, after all, I am the leader of our marriage and the head of this household, and what he thought I was gonna do is to help bring his wife from disobedience into obedience. So catch that he weaponized Ephesians 5, to benefit himself, and then came to a church that he thought would agree with him and affirm him and support him in that. Over several meetings, I saw in his personality some things that were kind of odd. I realized in, um, in, in the time that we met that he was incredibly manipulative. It was in uh, the way that he would try to convince me to come into alignment with him, and eventually I'm like, I actually think your wife is right. Uh, you, you gave me the reasons to believe the narrative that your wife is saying about you. And eventually and abruptly, as in one of the kind of moments where he was trying to bring me into alignment with it, I looked at him straight in the eye and said, I think your wife should divorce you. And he stopped. Now, now hear me. I don't think his wife should divorce him. I didn't. I just needed something that would be so rhetorically charged that would shock him into understanding this isn't a slight degree of shift or, or, or a little dialing in in your personality. You're an abusive, manipulative person, and it needs to change. So what did he do? He went to my elders. My elders, and I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them this, this powerful moment of credit because they said, we trust Eric, and if Eric said that to you, we believe he has good reasons for it and we're going to back him. So he didn't get what he wanted at that level. He didn't get that what he wanted at the other level. So what did he do next? He went to another church. Now there's a professional kind of counseling um, a law, an agreement that um, I can have conversations with other pastors regarding pastoral counseling, right? There's confidentiality, but from, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the term for it, but just like counselors can go get advice from other counselors. So I, I reached out to the church. And I said, hey, I want you to know about what I have learned over my time of meeting with this person. I got crickets, called again. Hey, left a message. Eventually that church reached out to me and said, hey, thank you for your time and um, the, the amount of um, you know, effort that you put into this, but um, we would like you to cease and desist any and all communication with this person and uh, our church. We don't want you dealing with this anymore. Um, and so I was, I was pushed out of that conversation, right? Okay, that's one experience. As I reflected, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, the theology that I've taught that um, doesn't just venture into problematic territory but is actually incredibly dangerous and oppressive to at least this one wife, if not many others. And I had to figure out what to do with that. Do I believe that there are husbands who are complementarian trying to do their best to be good husbands? I absolutely do think there are people trying to do that. In fact, that's what I was trying to be. Well, it's not the problem with the doctrine in here. It's a problem with the guys who execute it. So I'm gonna be the opposite. I'm gonna be the good husband who makes, who's so good at this 
uh, that, that I'm going to make people, I'm going to convince them that complementarianism must be good, and I'm not good enough to pull that off. In the midst of that, I began to question, like, okay, this whole system that, that can do this kind of level of harm that I witnessed, I could de- that it could be dealt out in such a way so as to cause the, the people, women in particular, to be enchained to something, it started to release my hand on my staunch complementarianism. Okay, this was just the beginning, just like, maybe, maybe this isn't um, right. At the same time, my wife was pointing out inconsistencies and issues that were taking place in the context that we were in. Um, holding the line on things that I just couldn't see until she brought them to my attention, and there's a reason for that, right? Um, But there were things like this. Did you notice that um, when the pastor saw me talking to a new person, and it was another young lady, we were having this conversation, he came and saw it was a new person, greeted that person, and then when he decided that he wasn't ready to, was done with the conversation, he said, I'm just going to leave you all to your girl talk, and then walked away. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe an innocent remark, but also reveals that there's some deep-seated issues inside of there that he doesn't think they have anything important to talk about. That they're just gonna, I don't know, TMZ gossip about celebrities or whatever it is that he thinks is going on, but you see what's going on in there. He did not think they had anything good to offer, so I'm just gonna leave you to that and then walked away from it. Did you notice that when we read the Hebrews Hall of Fame in chapter 11, nobody highlighted or even mentioned the women that are involved? In fact, it seemed like they might have in, intentionally skipped them. Okay, so again, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like, okay, I, I see, it's interesting. Did you notice that men in discipleship groups with seminary-trained professionals and even doctorates are being invited into those groups, but women have lay people who are not trained, don't know anything about the reasons for their basic theological assumptions? And we knew that because my wife was in one of those discipleship groups. Okay, all right, some imbalance again. Did you notice how they make heroes out of men, both in the scripture and in our church, and even diminish the sins that these men commit, but uphold and highlight female stereotypes, depicting them as seductresses, having the spirit of Jezebel, and as overbearing, often when they just had opinions inside of the classroom setting. There was a point where, I can't remember the term, uh, uh, sinning, you were asking questions, (laughs) I'm talking to my wife, sorry. We're having a little side conversation. Uh, and that someone said, you're, you're op- acting in the sin of Eve. Functioning in the sin of Eve for asking questions. Yeah. Um, do you see how they challenge men from ministries to take on new leadership roles, but they challenge women to clean up after events? That was consistent. And here's one that really um, just hit hard. Um, elders issued at one point a decree that women, quote, I'm quoting it, could not preside over communion. So as a, Bi- literally the name Bible church is in the name. As a Bible church, I said, tell me scripturally where this even exists. And I said, well, we'll get back to you. Okay, so knock, 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 knock. Hey, can, can you, I need to hear more about this. You can get back, they can get back to me. Well, okay, we, it wasn't in the scripture. It's, it's just in church tradition. Worst thing you could possibly say to me. So you don't actually have a scriptural reason for this. I mean, I'm saying not, not even just couldn't do the communion talk, couldn't hand out the elements to the different rows in the midst of that. So church tradition, not scripture, that's what we built our whole name on. So what is it that we're building this thing on if it's not the Bible, okay? All of this is happening over a span of several years at the same time that I'm going to an egalitarian seminary and they're helping me find out that there's theolo- theological alternatives that were either not taught or hidden from me, right? I, I don't know which. Maybe a little of both. 
that there are opportunities for you to read broader and understand that there are people who are trusted that love the scripture, hold highly to the authority of scripture. And we're gonna get into a couple of those today, um, but that they, they have alternative positions in, in the form of egalitarianism or other. And I needed that because I needed to have the power of these words, not just a cultural moment that was informing this. So I was holding out because I needed it to make sense here and they were informing me, they were giving me these things. At the same time, I'm watching, observing, and this one's embarrassing for me. Um, I'm watching the difference in the context of the church that I worked in and this seminary that was so good, uh, at least from my perspective, and encouraging and directing and challenging women, celebrating theological development, giving them representation in class, professors. Most of my professors, I would say at least 50 were were women. Models um, in administration, the books that we were reading. So they're thriving and excelling in this. And I'm seeing what it looks like to be in that environment versus what it looks like to be in the other environment. And it's like, This whole thing hit me and I started to realize that the power of a lack of advocacy, a lack of of representation and the engagement, though it wasn't an overt kind of oppression, it was a discreet, um, uh, uh, implicit way of creating an environment of oppression. Um, I don't have any, like there's parts of me that want to defend, like, well, I didn't know anymore, I didn't do this, I, I, it was what was handed to me. Look, like, I, I just, I did it wrong. I was a part of that system. And I, I, all you do is say sorry in that situation, as much as defensive wants to bring it. It's like the most embarrassing, one of the most embarrassing moments of my time as a pastor, uh, and I was, as Ephesians, as Ephesians says, darkened in mind and ignorant. Then I had to reckon with the fact that my wife was in that environment. Then I had to reckon with the fact (laughs) that my kids uh, were being discipled by it. Um, And so it's my opinion that even with the best intentions, complementarian in the context of the broader patriarchal society that we live in is problematic and dangerous. And it will always bend structurally to benefit men. Um, And and as one of my professors that I'm gonna um, quote here today is, and she was very gracious, but um, it benefits men um, to be in that environment, and so they're not as likely to even notice the problems, right? That was a very gracious way to put that. Uh, but for me, I, I had to pay attention because it was directly affecting where and how I operated in ministry, right? Um, and so I'm gonna point to people uh, like Lynn Co- Dr. Lynn Kohick, Dr. Sandra Glenn, Dr. Sandra Richter, um, and others here today. Um, This may not be your experience, it was mine, and it became the fuel that powered my conviction and passion to be in a place where I could advocate for my wife, for my sisters in Christ, and continue the best work uh, out the remnant of the patriarchy that has been discipled into me, the sexism that has been discipled into me, the misogyny that has been discipled into me from years and years and years, that benefits me, that has been baked into our culture. Uh, Do I need to keep going? Okay. Yeah. I I mean, I I mean... Could we just open it up maybe, right? The biased um, interpretations, uh, and that led us to the common ground family of churches. Um, this is where we're at, and, uh, and we're still imperfect in working these things out, yeah? 
Before we check out the scripture, I want to do three things. First, just stop and reflect on your own story, your own experiences with these scriptures, how they have shaped you, how maybe a lack of having conversations, how maybe they have benefited you if you're a male in our context, how they have been used and weaponized against women. Um, Just sit with that for a little bit and ask Jesus to show you where and how he should um, uh, ask you to respond. The second thing is to remember that context and consistency are vitally important. When we operate on these verses, what, what, what we determine for marriages is contextually understood to be carried into children and that relationship into servants, masters, and that relationship. And then third, I want to introduce to you, and I'm going to go back and forth between three and four um, different positions that people tend to take specifically on these verses, Okay. Um, and so option A, and I'm read them out loud to you, and then they're going to just kind of represent that opinion. I'll refer to them. Paul's advocating for these verses to be directives that are meant to be standardized for all people throughout all time. These are household, patriarchal, hierarchical, along with all of the things that go with it, norms meant to be standardized. That's position A. Position B is that Paul is advocating for Christ-likeness in spite of the restrictive cultural norms of that time. So Paul's advocating for Christ-likeness. He wants to gain favor. Maybe this isn't the battle he wants to pick on. There's evangelistic purposes. If we can gain their trust here, we can speak about Jesus over there. Regardless of or in spite of the oppressive cultural norms, he is going to encourage Christ-likeness, but not necessarily be in agree with them as existed. The last one is that Paul is advocating or challenging the restrictive cultural norms by establishing a more liberating order than they were used to in that day and age. So he's challenging the restrictive cultural norms by, re- by establishing an order that's more liberating than the common outworking, which potentially sends us on a trajectory of further liberalization, liberation, liberalization's not a word, all right? in view of scripture and as it guides. The fourth, and that's why you'll see some, I use three and four kind of interchangeably. There's a fourth one. The Catholic Church, if you grew up in a Catholic context, um, it, uh, it, it, to, to be favorable, it's not, um, it's not dignity, it's not the Imago Dei, it's not connected to if women can or can't. It is very simply rooted back to what is called tradition and apostolic succession. Since Jesus was a man, men should be in leadership. Since the apostles were men, men should be in leadership. Um, I'm not gonna deal with that that much because I just think it's kind of an obvious and, and we don't fall in that tradition anyways. But, but in, their, um, in that tradition, that's kind of the way that, that it succeeds um, from men to men to men to men, okay? So that would be a fourth um, option that'll come out later uh, that I'm just not gonna deal with much. With that being said, I want you to open up real quick to Ephesians 5.15. We're gonna read through verse 22. I'm gonna make some... Um, uh, some observations. Then I'm going to read the rest of these verses through the end. Uh, I think it's, I think it goes through um, nine, six, nine. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in the direct reading. I'm going to trust that you all can read the scripture yourself. But what I want to do is to give you a couple of options that help you look differently at this than maybe just a literal direct reading of it um, that has been advocated for in many complementarian churches. So Ephesians 5.15 says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs with, from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I'm going to read the first line to verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do unto the Lord. So if you were paying attention, the first thing you thought is, oh, Eric picked up at the wrong part of the scripture. Jump to the right part, buddy. Two notes that I want to make on this and why I started where I did. The translation and the literary structure have to be pointed out. Translators have opinions. Translators have biases. If you didn't know that, you know that now, all right? So do pastors. Like, we can't, you can't act like you, you don't have those things, right? So your translation is advocating for one of these positions, A, B, or C, simply by the way they've translated and arranged the scripture, and most specifically, where they place verse 21. Do they connect it to the previous verses? Do they connect it to the secondary verses? Do they remain neutral and connect it to both? Where they put that heading in there, right, that wasn't in the scripture originally. Second is the literary context of these verses. It's set in at least one, if not two, contexts, which loosen the grip of the idea that Paul is advocating just purely that this is a directive to be standardized. This is what I mean. The beginning of this section is verse 15, and the heading of that section is this. Wisdom, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish by understanding what by understanding what the Lord's will is. So it's, it shifted. Did you catch a shift? It's wisdom and folly language. It's wise living. The days are evil, so we need to live wise. It's not a directive, not a standardization of these kinds of things. And this is what it would look like if you were to put it inside of an outline form. Go ahead and throw those scriptures up there. Look at the beginning of that. This is just a screenshot, so sorry for the, the bad quality, but I want you to see. Uh, we're, we're putting an emphasis on a heading in verse 15 through 17. Be careful then. All those things, I won't read them again. Do not be foolish. Then he gives you two outworkings of doing that. This is how you become wise. Now, catch that Paul transitioned from our teaching last week, which were what? Behavioral imperatives. They were clearly directives. Do this don't do this. Now do this, and instead of that, do this. Don't do this, this. Three sets of three in a very ordered, calculated way of writing those things. Then he says, but this next section, section we are treating as wisdom. We are treating because the days are, do not be foolish. So at least, let me catch this at least, may not be a slam dunk, may not be a closed cut case, he is at least saying these are suggestions for wise living, not absolutes for all time in all contexts, but even suggesting that they're merely, merely wise options to consider given the context of Ephesus in particular. If you want to learn more about that, Dr. Craig Keener um, has an entire book. Uh, and then the Bible, actually the Bible Project gives a summary, follows a similar um, strain of thought inside of their, their teaching on Ephesians. Now I'm going to come back to the context of Ephesus, but what I want you to see is the language shifts over and against the idea that they are meant to be just codified, solidified, permanent rules for households that must follow these things for all time in order to be a Christian forever. This may not be obvious as like, a, it's, it's over and said and done, but then I'm going to take that and couple it with a second thing. The second thing is this, verse 21 exists as a heading for submission verses. So, if you have an ESV, your Bible put it at the top end. 
Uh, it also made a couple of other odd decisions in the midst of that, uh, which is why we choose the one that, that we choose, because it makes these um, corrections. Um, but submission, if you read it inside of the context, go ahead and put up that next scripture. I, I know I'm going out of order, but hopefully I can. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. That word submit right after wives actually isn't in the Greek. It, it's, not, it's not like they just made it up. They borrow it from that verse before. So it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives yourselves to your husbands. So it's continuing that. My point is this, you can't separate those two. 21 is absolutely connected to 22. And so if you came at it with this idea, then you're gonna move that verse 21 around. All right, I'm gonna play, play with it a little bit. So what I think we need to do is make sure those things are connected. And so maybe you're like, wow, that wisdom folly stuff is a little shaky for me. We'll couple it with this because verse 21, you can't trade that out for anything. It's very direct. Everything that comes after this has to fall in order with the idea of mutual submission. So, so this word submission borrowed from verse 21, it flavors everything we read over this next section, 522 through 69, that entire section, meaning that in some way, the heading of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, representing mutual submission, has to be prioritized, upheld, at least reckoned with. Do you see what I'm saying? At least reckoned with. You can't act like those verses following it adequately represent mutuality unless you understand something going on behind the scenes. So I'm gonna just read all of this section. Again, I'm not gonna break down every bit of this. I'm gonna make a couple of observations um, and I'm gonna give you some resources. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the ha- wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to the husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or without any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now I say I'm going to keep reading, so I know it's a long section. Next, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and and the wife must respect her husband. Sorry, this is where I meant to say that last little break. Verse six, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Did you catch the wisdom piece brought in there? That's That's a proverb, that's like a parable. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This one comes back every time I want to be sarcastic and make jokes with my kids and, uh, and play around with them. Like, okay, don't, but don't exasperate them. Don't exasperate them, all right? You can take this too far, all right? Fathers, don't exasperate the children. Um, but, but instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ. Do you see why he was telling them there? Obey them, why? To win their favor. 
but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Um, and you can make a point for a trajectory even at that very last part. Okay. If you live within a, a literal reading only, without any cultural aspects considering, you have to think about the idea that submission was a willful choice. That's pretty clear liter- literally. Uh, it's even contingent maybe upon the husband's ability to love like Christ loved the church. All right? Contingent. You also have to consider that the word submission is just is an ordering, an arrangement word, um, usually used with military so that the people with the right gifts do the right job. So you're gifted this way, you do this thing, you're gifted this way, you do this thing. And, and by, by bringing it all together, then um, all things uh, will come together and work um, like a well-oiled machine, okay? So if you're just going literal, these are things you have to at least, it's wisdom language though, and it corresponds with the idea of mutual submission. So I don't think that 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 this is a closed-cut case either. Do you see what I'm saying? Like as shaky as living in this world wants to depict everything over here, you step over here and you're like, but that's, and, it, and where, is, is it consistent with the rest of the Bible? And, and there's other things, well, well let, me, let me show you because there are many cultural conditions, considerations and options that you have to think about. One question is to ask this, where does the idea of household codes come from in the first place? Well, it comes from the Greek culture. Dr. Lynn Coick said this, the household codes go back to the time of Plato. They're deeply connected to their political reflections of the state, so it's a political thing. Um, And uh, their works reflect their philosophical view and reveal their positions of ontology between male, female, child, and slave. I'm gonna explain that in a little bit. In the next few centuries, several philosophers embraced and modified these views on the family and the state. The apostles draw on existing themes concerning household codes. So ontology means that that is the nature of the being involved. That is the very nature, meaning that they believe the ones in subordination, this is the Greek culture, building out these household codes, that they are subordinate because they are inferior by nature. I, I can't imagine any person in this day and age still believing that. Aristotle said it this way. Let me give a couple of proofs. Um, he was probably the most, uh, he wrote this book called Politics, one of the most informative. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of the master over slaves. Another is of a father. And the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over his wife and children. Both free, but the rule differs. The rule over children being a royal. Over his wife, a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Did you, did you cringe there? Just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature, Aristotle concludes that this section by commenting um, that the courage of a man is shown in his ability to command over a woman and of a woman her ability to obey. That's what's dominant in this culture. Now I'm gonna skip another section that's even, uh, probably dials that in because I'm realizing how far we are on our time. But we have, uh, we have at least three very well-known texts in there that tie this to the nature of the person. And so when you see Paul jump into this, is there any way to read what we just read in Ephesians without realizing, oh, he's, he's like quoting Aristotle right now. Do you see what he's doing? He, there is an entire way organized in these communities. The next one, um, ah, I don't have time. 
if, if you want to look at it, it's Philo of Alexandria, um, and he talks more about the organization. He's directly quoting Aristotle. He's directly quoting Philo of that time. These codes originate. They're based on this idea that people are inferior. Women are inferior. Children are, slaves are inferior. And so when Paul pops in, borrows language from that, very clearly borrowing language from that, that they all would know, then you ask, well, why is he doing it? Well, we also see that he didn't actually quote them directly. He modifies them. Uh, again, uh, well, not actually, different, different quote. Dr. Nijay Gupta writes, the New Testament writers did not simply cut and paste from the standard domestic codes. The codes are Christianized. Paul seems to be caught between the values and ethos of the surrounding culture and the radical challenge offered to those values by the new thing that was happening, quote, in Christ. So Paul was able to move as far as he did in accepting women as friends, as colleagues, fellow workers in the Lord. So we have a choice to kind of make. Did he borrow from this so that he could make obvious these changes? And in our day and age, do they seem like enough? It's for you to debate. Uh, was he either concerned, he didn't want to rock the boat too much? He's like, okay, I got to pick and choose my battles. I'm not going to pick these things right now because what I want to do is eventually evangelize, get greater influence in the lives of these people and make changes later. And we do see change specifically in who Paul uh, anoints and sends out. Another one is to see that these are actually so radically different. If we jump over to here, these are so radically different than what Aristotle and Philo were teaching that he was actually putting himself in danger by advocating for women, challenging them. We see it inside of Jesus' ministry. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the fivefold ministry. We see it in Paul sending women out. And so I'm going to name a few of them. Phoebe was a, a, a trained messenger of the gospel. We see it as someone delivering a note. She came and answered questions. She came, read it out loud. Paul's like, I want you to emphasize this. Get louder here. Trained her on how to deliver this message. And then she is supposed to field all the questions as if Paul were there himself. That's what Phoebe did. She taught, she preached, she answered questions. You have Nympha, you have Priscilla who taught Apollo. You have Chloe and others. The one that's the most problematic kind of for this angle is Junia. She's literally listed as an apostle equal to Epaphras. This has prompted all kinds of shady business in church history. Like, like people changed her name to make her not female. All right? So in 1979, for a very long time, it was changed to Junius, a male version of the same name. And there was all kinds of writings, by the way, about how awesome Junius as an apostle was. 1979... There was some scholarship where they revealed this was not a man. This is definitely a woman. In fact, we can see where you changed it back here. Who changed this? And then all of a sudden, guess what happened? No writings on Junia, the apostle. They minimized her and her authority and her abilities. It's, it's, it's infuriating, yeah? Okay, women did lead in the early church. That's not debatable. Women were high-level leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You have to understand that. And so it creates a problem over here. And now we have a couple of these things to start talking about, right? If the overarching context of Ephesians was that of a patriarchal society, then my hope is that today I've at least 
loosened your grip on some of these other narratives you've been given. You realize that there are some cultural elements that make it definitely not permanent, but likely in this case, it's, it's, it's not, this is not consistent with the rest of Scripture when we look at who is sent out, when we look at who is gifted and leading inside of the New Testament. This just can't, it's not contextually informed as to what's happening in this. Perhaps it's a cultural accommodation. You might be able to get here. I don't like them, but like, let's live in them and be good at them to gain the favor. Like, you might be able to land there. But if Paul is challenging the culture by taking this, then I think what he's doing is saying, look, this society is a, a two or three, and I'm going to push you to a five or a six or a seven, which brings us to what, nine or ten in our day and age that we're supposed to be at, but we're probably stuck back there. There's a trajectory at hand. The first woman to proclaim the gospel and the resurrection was married. The first person uh, to speak after Pentecost is a woman. There are women prophesying. In fact, there's rules for women prophesying. That's how we know there's prophesying going on. So it's not even possible to just say women aren't supposed to speak. And what we have in the midst of this is, is, is things like, like 2 Timothy 2 with these restrictive verses. And I don't have time to go into all of it. Um, and I've already probably given us too much right now. Um, but contextually, I think that they're just bound up in the moment of what's taking place. Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus, by the way. So those are related situations. Anything you read in Timothy is happening in the city of Ephesus. And so there's this entire whole culturally relevant moment inside of the city of Ephesus where women are coming. We, we get this book by a guy named Xenophobe. That's a cool name, right? Xenophobe. I don't know what it means. Uh, I don't, I don't want to get too far into that. But um, he uh, wrote this book about high society life in Ephesus. And it gives us this tradition for women coming out of the Artemis temple where they would sing songs and incantations so they can memorize the theology of uh, Artemis. There's a creation narrative that they're bringing in that Artemis is the mother of all things. She created the world. She created the cosmos. She created man. She created all these things. The woman was born first. Man came from woman. And that there was a man by the name of Ra who was deceived by something. And that the woman, therefore, is wiser and has never been led astray. So she should be in charge of all things. No men were allowed to lead in the temple of Artemis because they were considered ontologically inferior. Does that sound familiar? Okay, so there's evidence that even suggests that men were brutalized in this temple. Depictions of statues. Throw up Artemis right here. I throw this up one time. And then one of the questions we have, it's that statue. What are those bulbs? And there's a couple of obvious ones. I'll try to keep it appropriate, right? A couple of obvious ones. They're, they're, are they breasts? Are they uh, bags of magic, which is a, a predominant? Are they beehives? I don't know why they all start with bee, but they do. Um, are they the castrated parts of bulls? And by extension, is she decorated by the castrated parts of men? Because men were being castrated in this temple. And here it is like a trophy. Okay, add that to the intense fear that if you want to deliver children safely and not die during childbirth, you'll pay homage to the mother goddess Artemis who's responsible for a positive or negative outcome, so you must be loyal to her. And all these women are coming into the church, and when you come from this cult, you're filled with this theology, you're afraid to disengage from the good graces of this woman named Artemis, this god. And so let me read 1 Timothy 2.11 to you. A woman should learn in quietness full submission 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you see how he's directly addressing the theology of Artemis? Directly. No, 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 it wasn't, she's not the one that was first. It was Adam first, right? It's not necessarily making an, an ordering. And Adam was not deceived, not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But a woman will be saved through childbearing. Oh, how many of you read that and you're like, childbearing gets you salvation? Weird. That's because that's not what it's talking about. But the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. They're saying, Artemis isn't in control of your childbearing. God is. Come be safe with us. Don't live in the fear of that. Every one of those things ties back to this cult of Artemis of what would be considered a toxic femininity. Okay? So some would contend that in a toxic patriarchy, if, 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 if Paul said to ask a male to be in headship over a woman in toxic femininity, what should we do? What's the natural conclusion in a toxic patriarchy? Who should be in charge here? Did I set that up well enough? You still look confused. That, that if, if we live in a toxic patriarchal structure, that we should put those who don't have power in charge so that they can balance things out inside of our church. So... Men, submit to your wives. Um, there, there, is, there is so, now so much to think about in here. The culmination of all these things, all I'm trying to do is to get you to reconsider that this was not as obvious as somebody might have wanted you to believe it was. All I want you to do is to consider moving in this direction. I want you to know where common ground is firmly over here on this side of things. And the culmination of this is all for us to ask some new questions to begin looking at it. On your way out, there is a little slip of paper that's like hot dog style cut down the middle. All right, with all of the sources, the main sources, I should say, that I've turned, there's stuff for you to read. There's commentaries for you to check out. There is audio stuff. I know a lot of you are podcasters, so I have a whole list of podcasts for you to check out dealing with a lot of these different things. Um, what, what I want you to understand then here, and, and on the front, and go ahead and put up that last graphic, is that I don't believe everyone just exists clearly in this box or this box or this box, but that it's like a continuum, right? Just like everything else we talk about here, right? This is probably cliche, where's Eric gonna throw up a continuum, right? Resources on one side of that paper, on the other side is a continuum of what it would be if you were a staunch complementarian, holding to it, believing ontologically that women are inferior. Then a step down, then a step down, then what's called mutualism in the beginning, which is what Craig Keener, Dr. Craig Keener advocates for. And then it goes into um, different levels of, of what it would look like to move into an egalitarian space, even down to a space that would consider that becoming toxic. All right, it's all in a list. And what I want you to do is to ask yourself, what is God telling you to move into? What is God challenging you to consider that you hadn't heard before? Inside of these orientations, um, I want you to know that even as we give you these categories, they're fairly new categories. The, um, church of 100, 200, 300 years ago didn't, didn't use these same categories. In fact, um, you'll sometimes hear me jokingly say John Piper's complementarianism because him and, and Wayne Grudem made that term up in 2012. It's that new. It's that new. Okay. Um, we want you to be informed. 
We want you to do the work of digging into the scriptures, studying the context. I know this was a lot today. I've been setting up and gearing for this for a while. So there's a lot more. In fact, there's probably so much more we could jump into. If you have questions, concerns, if you want to push back, just email me this week or give me a text if you have my phone number. Most of you do. Um, and, and ask me whatever question, and I'll try to get a resource to you that will help balance that out. But try to check out the ones I've supplied already first, if you can. Um, we want you to weigh into this. We want you to read scripture in community, as Sandra Glan mentioned earlier, that some things just don't matter to you because they don't fit in a category that would matter to you. But if you had been listening to women this whole time, there would have been an easy, like, hey, this is something wrong here something going on. So read scripture in community, read it in context, make sure it stays consistent with the rest of the scripture inside of the midst of this. Um, I did not come at this because of some secular gender liberation orientation. The scriptures got me here. Okay? I have a very high view of scripture, maybe uncomfortably for some of you. Um, But please do the work Uh, We are going to side on the conclusion that gives the most liberation that is consistent and theologically sound in the context given to us when these letters were written. Um, When we step out, and here's the accountability for me as a pastor, when you see inconsistencies, please come to me. Yeah. Um, And we're going to do our best to to fix those things. Um, uh, That's my invitation to you. Let's, Let's pray together. So, Lord, thank you for, um, uh, it's, it's a big teaching. There's weight to it. There's heaviness to it, God, but um, there's also liberation in it. There's grace. And Father, to, to see someone like Rick Warren come this late to the party is <laughs> hard to take. Uh, but he also has one of the soundest podcasts theologically on why he did Father, wherever you have us at, God, we want to see liberation, even when it costs, even when it hurts, even when it comes with admissions of guilt and um, ignorance. And so, Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you bring liberation wherever it has not existed yet? And we pray that, Father, um, in the context of gender, in the context of race, in the context of all those who are underrepresented um, in our society, God, would that not be so in your kingdom? Would it not be so in your church because it's not so in your kingdom? So, Father, uh, maybe the prayer is just simply the age-old, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.